Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Notice That, the EMDR podcast. This is Bridger um, with the Notice That team getting to introduce um, this next episode of the Back to Basics season. You're going to be listening in on a conversation between Jen and Melissa on chapter two of Francine's uh, introductory text into uh, EMDR. And so if you've got your books or if you've read through, just call into mind that chapter two on adaptive information processing, and you'll listen in to hear them uh, talk about a section of that chapter entitled Time-Free Psychotherapy and what it means for us to uh, have the ability within EMDR to move quickly through some really distressing uh, experiences, but also what power there can be in going slow why that might actually speed us up. Uh, before you jump into the episode, I just wanted to remind you, check out our website, connectbeyondhealing.com, for all of our training and consultation offerings uh, in the you know quarter three and four of uh, the 2023 uh, calendar. There are several opportunities to get trained in our somatic integration and processing a uh, case conceptualization model for EMDR, which is um, accredited for 10 hours of advanced EMDRIA credit. So if you are needing some advanced EMDRIA credit uh, for your certification or anything like that, that is covered. Um, also, check out our EMDR certification program. Uh, both Jen, Melissa, and myself have new cohorts opening in July and August and September. And then there's always uh, just one-off webinar opportunities. So if you're at all interested in learning more about EMDR or uh, working somatically or from the bottom up, check out our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and click on the Four Therapists tab. So just wanted to make sure everybody had an awareness of where to find information. We get a lot of emails about that. Um, but without further ado, I'll let you go ahead and jump into the episode. I really hope you enjoy it.
Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Melissa and I are in our virtual studio today and are ready to get back into our Back to Basics um, season. It feels like, I don't know listener-wise what your experience is, but it feels like it's been several weeks since we've recorded a Back to Basics episode. So I'm feeling eager to kind of get back into the text and get to start talking about some of these other pieces associated with adaptive information and processing. So just as a reminder to those of you who are following along in the text, um, we're still chapter one, I think. Two. I think we're in two. Two. We made it into two. (laughs) Yes. So we're, I would want to say we're doing like a really thorough processing, which, but there's just still so much more. I feel like in many ways, we could spend like six episodes per chapter. Yeah. Well, I, I am currently consoling myself with the idea that number one, the back to basics season is probably going to extend over more than one length of a normal season. And that's okay. And then I'm imagining a beyond the basics season where we come back <laughs> to some of these concepts and uh, maybe say say some things that we haven't said and uh, go a little bit deeper and in, into some of these more complex issues because there there really is a lot here. But for those that want to follow along, I think today we'll be starting on page 45 primarily. So. If you would like to uh, open your hymnals to page 45. <laughs> I had that feeling like this is a That's right. <laughs> and we will be uh, singing from a section called Time-Free Psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that when we were determining kind of what our episode would be focused on, that title caught your attention to say like, oh, this is where we need to go with this episode. Um, we just share a little bit about like why that one stands out is like, this is of all the chapters, there's many chapters we're not spending an entire episode Mm -hmm. in or not chapters, but paragraphs or sections. Uh, but that one specifically is standing out as important. Yes. So (laughs) when, when I read this, um, the first time, Uh, I remember feeling curious about it. And then this time through what I wrote uh, in the book, because at this point I kind of write my conversation back to the author in the margins of books. And so what is written next to time-free psychotherapy on page 45 is a simple statement of this is a misleading claim. (laughs) Um, And I, I feel like uh, it is important to give some, updates and some deep nuance to uh, this idea. Um, I understand Francine's original desire to really highlight and promote the ways that EMDR was exceptional and special because it is, um, and to really make it clear that EMDR is doing something that traditional talk therapies uh, were not and are not able to do. So the the heart behind this claim, I understand, and yet there's always a danger in speaking beyond <laughs> what um, is actually evidentially true. Um, and so I, I want to talk about the nuances of this claim, but just make it really clear from the beginning that this this idea that EMDR is able to be fast and uh, quick, a quick fix kind of therapy. Um, has really done more damage than good. Mm -hmm. At at the beginning, it might have served to 
garner some attention to EMDR and make people desire to get trained in it. And I think that at the end of the day, that's probably a good thing. Um, but the the notion that we could be really speedy about the resolution of trauma, I think has been something that the field of EMDR as a whole has actually had to work against and um, re-educate ourselves and clients about what EMDR can do and what it can't do and why sometimes it does go magically fast and other times it doesn't go much faster than any other therapy. Yeah. Um, and and so I, I, I think I'm just desiring that this episode be a really honest exploration from two people that are, number one, still very devoted to EMDR, but number two, have, you know, a decade's worth of experience at this point and understand how slow it can actually go and why it should, uh, why um, looking to rush and looking to be fast um, is tempting, but not actually uh, desirable in most situations. Um, and I know that in other episodes, we have talked about this in some form or fashion. So what I was imagining today was, you know, a little bit of a refresh on that and why that is. Um, but then also maybe just speaking, you know, from our very human experience about how do we have realistic expectations of EMDR? Yeah. And how do we share those with clients? So that's kind of how I'm coming in to this conversation. I love that. And when I, you know, I had looked through that, that title brought up one thing in my system. And then I read the contents of the paragraph and thought, I actually agree with what's said, a lot of what's said in the content. It's the overarching like labeling and of that title that feels like the mismatch. Um, yeah. A lot of the statements that are made in the paragraph are, it can move quickly and mm -hmm. it can target clusters of experiences. And, you know, like all of these really beautiful things that EMDR has to offer and that being held in this paragraph. But I think one of the greatest errors of the field is we take the potential of what it can do. And we add sometimes a really flashy label or identi like identifier to it that then creates um, this misconception that that's what it always looks like. And especially if we are good enough as clinicians and we know our material well enough, it should look this way right. versus it could look this way. And leaving a lot of space and room for maybe it to look a very different way where maybe we could still be doing it in alignment with the model and really good therapy, but it's slow. And maybe it's not, we're clustering all these events. We're taking like a fraction of one memory is all mm -hmm. that our systems can handle to process. And so the, the difference between the it should and it could is where I think I really want to like emphasize that as we process this. Right. Yeah. And and maybe that's a, a good way of kind of posturing our addition to this section, which is, I agree with everything that is said, but I would like to really elaborate on the clauses of it might, it could, it can, yeah. and talk about when it doesn't, and it won't, and we shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Because that that's like such a common experience for us. And there's there's just not a lot of clarity and guidance on how do we do EMDR when it's not going fast? And how do we feel grounded in the protocol when we have to make adaptations and slow down 
And how do we make sense of why it's going so slow? Um, so I think that's a nuance that we can add that doesn't take away from the fact that sometimes it can move magically fast um, and why that is. Yeah. I've had what feels like in the last few weeks, I don't know if you have this experience with clients or consultees where there's like a theme of the month, which is mm-hmm. like, I feel like everybody's working on the same things over and over again, which are is so cool. Cause then I feel like my system really gets to like integrate that concept. But um, the theme that I've had kind of recently with a few consultees of mine is reaching out with this idea of it never goes. Like, I feel like it's, I I had one person say like, I think like times I'm just ready to like give up on EMDR um, Mm -hmm. where it just feels like it's not going the way that uh, it was presented in the videos or the way that I expected it to look or the way that consultants are talking about it. Um, And I had one consultant in particular was like, oh, I had this session where for the first time it did. And it was like that aha mm-hmm. moment. And it was like, that's why I'm doing all of this. But still the majority of my caseload in the two years I've been practicing this, that's the first time I got that. Mm-hmm. And my question for her was, tell me about that client's early attachment experiences. Tell me that. Mm-hmm. Like, was does was there adaptive enough life to life experiences that it's an overall stable person? And she was like, yeah, definitely. And we were working on this one thing that happened to her like six months ago. And it was, you know, some medical stuff that happened there, but she's got a really supportive husband and, you know, gave a little bit of these details. And I was like, that's the why, like, right. It's not let's scrap EMDR altogether, but Maybe when it's a standardized case and they have adaptive resources and a solid foundation, keep that. And then let's scrap all of the rigidity of EMDR for those really complex, challenging cases. But we can still use the model and the wisdom from that, but just in a more creative kind of expansive way. But that rigid approach isn't going to be effective for those really complex cases. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I think that feeling of, I know how good it can go and I know what it, you know, can do, but it's not usually that way. Like that's actually the less common experience for most therapists, uh, leaves us in this kind of felt sense quandary of, uh, do I do I want to use this regularly or not? And how do I know when it's going to be one of those magical moments where it, it's the you know the thing that's going to shift things really quickly, um, versus this is going to be one of those times where I need a lot of adaptation and change. And and I think feeling our way through that um, is where you know you and I spend the majority of our time talking to people about the the nuances of conceptualizing our cases and making sense of what to target, when to target, why to target, and how to um, prepare our clients so that we have the best chance possible of a target going well when we finally get to that point where we're targeting it. I found myself saying a few times and really hoping that it um, doesn't land as discouraging to people because I don't mean it that way, but um, I, I have this sort of fixation in myself with my own clients and, and our work where I don't want to try to target something until I feel pretty sure that we could clear it in one session. Now, for me, a session is often more than one hour. So that's that's not a 50-minute session. But in a day, in half a day, that I could begin a target and clear it pretty quickly. 
And there's this resistance in me to beginning a target if I don't feel pretty confident that we could get through it. And I I think what that is, is that feeling of, I don't like beginning a target and knowing that it's likely that we're going to run up against something that is going to be really hard to work through in the midst of it. I would rather do as much of that as we can ahead of time so that by the time we get into that target, things do move pretty fast and it moves pretty smoothly. Um, I don't think we have to work that way. And I don't want to suggest that everybody should do that. But I think that that's been my way of trying to um, make sure that EMDR is used when it is uh, the right tool for the job. Um, But also conceptualizing that I'm always doing EMDR. It's just that I'm in preparation uh, for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm doing really precise and nuanced preparation so that by the time we get to phase four, we, we can go fast and it can be one of those really uh, beautiful experiences. Um, I don't know how, how you've been experiencing yeah. that, but that's kind of been my way of working with it. Well, and when I think of like the way you practice, Melissa, in that preparation, like you have so much that you do with like somatic work um, and just like, you know, moving activation through the system and bringing them back into their body. Like that's, uh, that precision of work is sometimes takes months and months to do that. But then, you know, when you come in and you activate a memory network, we're not going to run into that. Oh, but they can't experience it in their body or it's completely trapped or all cognitive. And so I think that's a, you know, something that you have a lot of the training and experience to do that. And it's not the only way to go about doing it, but it is saying, how do I bring in to this model, to this eight-phase protocol, many other pieces, right? And resourcing doesn't just mean, or preparation doesn't just mean the scripts that we were given in training, but I start folding in and braiding in other approaches and other modalities and other theories to say, I'm working with a whole system, with a holistic approach, and it all fits into that protocol, but we're not really going to put the pedal to the metal and like dive in until... Mm -hmm me and them and our systems are in alignment and ready to do that. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a really good way of saying it. As you were talking, I was sort of having this mental image of, you know, how many dress rehearsals do we need to do before the live performance? And the answer is as many as it takes. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, we, you know, we, we keep doing the dress rehearsal where, where it's safer for it to be messy, um, where, where the stakes are lower, where there's not as much, pressure and activation in the system, um, where if we, you know, stumble onto something, it's okay. You know, we, we, we've, uh, got the space and, and everything that we need in order to deal with that. Um, and I just crave that, that feeling of when we get to the live performance, when it's time to go, that I feel really confident that between me and the client, we got what, what we need. Like that's, that's what I'm desiring is I, I've been in so many, sessions of EMDR, both my own and other people's, where we weren't ready and it can feel really hard and it can almost feel like suffering because we're, we're you know, banging our head against a wall over and over, hoping that it's going to come down. Um, and there there are ways of, of avoiding that feeling and working around that. Um, and so I think that's like when I, when I read this and think about time-free psychotherapy, that is the deep nuance that I want to add of, yeah, it can be really fast if all of the essential pieces are in place and ready to go. 
but it can take a very long time to get all of those essential pieces in place. And we have to take as much time as the client needs and requires in order to have all those pieces. And I'm imagining that people are going to want us to name those pieces. So we should probably do that. (laughs) Well, kind of before jumping into that, I'm imagining the metaphor of if we're about to take a road trip somewhere and we've got to get from point A to point B, there is the approach more of what you're describing of like, we're going to take, you know, several weeks or months at the beginning of our road trip to pack and prepare and make sure we have everything that we need and to thoroughly load up so that when we get on there, we can just straight line, straight. Yeah. We yeah, need drive to straight through. There's another approach that says, okay, we don't, we got a few things and we're not sure really what we need yet. We don't know what we're going to encounter. We're not even sure what that looks like, but let's go. And it's not that we have to drive straight through, but maybe we stop off and we take a week or two weeks or a month to say, oh, we learned that there's, this is coming up and we need to like sit in and prepare for that. And then we go a little bit further and we take another stop. And like, we're just, that the thing is, is that the length of time is the same, whether we do it on the front end or we allow it to happen throughout. But what we're not doing is just trying to blow past and say, it doesn't matter what we have. We just have to get there and stay committed to that plan because that's what's supposed to happen. And it has to be time-free, like it has to be really quick. No, because in complex trauma systems, that's not going to work. In fact, what you're going to get is a lot of strategy and it's going to look like it's working, but it's not going to be authentically working. So I think in that we have either end of the spectrum of maybe you do your front-loading work. And you take a lot of really slow time in the beginning and then it hits. Or maybe there's some clients, I don't know if anyone's had this, but they're like, I'm here for EMDR. When are we going to do EMDR? When are we going to get off those Let's get started. Yes. And that won't be the effective approach is to say, actually through, by doing it, we will discover what we need, but we've got to be responsive to the needs still. And then, you know, we can meet the system and then we can keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that you know, as much as I like to imagine that I can choose which version of that we do, it is always going to be determined by the client and it should be. Um, And, you know, it's our job to stay in sync with them and be responsive to to what we can feel uh, they really need in order to stay engaged with the process for the long haul. But if they give me the option, (laughs) I am by nature a front loader um, and yeah, that, that is just my preference after all of these years. But you you are right that I think at the end of the day, the amount of time is probably pretty close to the same. The the felt experience of it might be a little bit different um, to the therapist, but I think to the client, the the work ends up being very, very similar in how we do it. Yeah. You were before I gave that metaphor, you were starting a topic. Oh, yes. Well, okay. So, so I think there's probably a desire for us to name, you know, what are the things on our packing list, right? Mm -hmm. That we would hope to have in the car with us before we begin, or if we end up having to do the the detour version, what are we doing in those detours? You know, we we kind of blanket call all of that resourcing and preparation, but I think it, it might be useful for us to try to name what we consider the essential things. Like we do not go on a road trip without these things. And then there's probably also a list of things where it's like, it's also really nice if we can have this. If we don't, it's okay. But, you know, there there should be Cheetos on a road trip if we can manage it. <laughs> yes. 
I think the first thing that comes to mind as we were talking about your somatic emphasis, to me, that's a critical component, no matter what your experience as a therapist is in that of like, if the client does not have the capacity to experience sensation in the body and hold awareness of that to whatever degree it is, if there is such a dissociation to what's experienced in the body, that's one of those that's like, we could still go on the road trip, but we are going to spin our tires. And so I have found, I love to front load that kind of work, but I've also found some clients don't know, like you can't, how do you know what you don't know? Like, how do you get into it that maybe it's by starting a little of something that like creates the opportunity to say, now we're building activation in the system. Now, how do we create safety around that? But I do think that's a key ingredient that has to be picked up somewhere. Somewhere we're either going to do it before or like really early on in the trip, we're going to come to that barrier. This is, you can't go any further until you have this piece. Yeah. 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 I think in addition to that, a, a felt sense of accessible safety. Um, and it it doesn't have to be a broad and permanent sense of safety because that's not realistic for many of our clients. Uh, but at least the ability to feel safe in a moment with us and, and, you know, ground and in that present moment sensation of safety um, is essential. And, you know, installing a calm, safe place is a way to access that. But for many clients, that's not enough. Um, it, it might state change them into something that is more calm than their usual activation. Uh, but for things to really resolve, it sometimes has to be deeper than that. And we we have to find ways of relationally engaging in safety and really feeling that sense of safety and connection. And that can take a while for a lot of people. Um, and we have to, you know, attend to the relationship of us, especially if there's significant attachment trauma in their history that ends up being an essential piece at some point in the process. Um, so definitely access to body sensations, access to a felt sense of safety in our presence, you know, in the presence of another human uh, feels essential. Then the other thing that is sort of in the category of, I really like to have it ahead of time. If we can't, then we can do it on the fly if we need to, is some idea of what the disconfirming material is going to be for the particular traumas that we're going to work on. Um, I think out of all of the the things that we run into most consistently with clients um, where EMDR just seems to not be working, it's because there is not a lived experience that has the potential and the power to disconfirm their previous trauma. They they don't have anything yet uh, that is a is a mismatch for that in their history. And so we often have to spend time creating something, cultivating that, finding finding access to that. And that can be a complicated process for a lot of people. Um, so if we can get that ahead of time, I like to know what that's going to be, or at least have a good guess of what it's going to be. But oftentimes we end up doing that on the fly. Yeah. So just to give an example, we, we use the concept of disconfirming experience all the time through our mm -hmm. SIP training. But to give an example of what that can look like for the listeners that that might be like, what do you mean in that? Um, if the kind of general networks we're going to be working on or the schema 
that we're trying to address is maybe, for instance, um, yeah, my needs don't matter. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's been learned through their lived experiences, through childhood and all of their traumatic experiences. We're looking to say where in their life has a disconfirming experience where their their needs did matter and they were able to have those needs recognized by another or to have their needs honored and met by another without uh, additional stipulations. And I Mm. think we can be seeking that from their own lived experiences of navigating where it is that and what does it feel like for you to connect that that was a reality somewhere at some point in time even if it doesn't feel like it represents the general story of your life. And it can also be created in the session. And we talk a lot about this in our trainings of like building those disconfirming experiences relationally to be able to say, if you know that starting out, then everything you do, every resource, every trauma processing, every interaction, every invitation to like get a blanket or a pillow, like is in honor of that disconfirming experience? How are we communicating verbally and non-verbally that your needs matter? Because mm-hmm. we're trying to build that felt experience of something different than that schema. That's right. Yeah. Well, and I, I love that way of talking about it that, you know, it's great if they have it in their lived life and we can reference that. But for many clients, we end up creating it. And I think the the essential thing to to know is that in order for the disconfirmation to work, it's not about them cognitively agreeing with the idea. It's it's about them feeling it in a way that resonates as deeply true. Um, otherwise, because cognitive information doesn't have the power to disconfirm emotional learning, right? Otherwise, like we wouldn't have jobs if that was the case. People would read books and everything would be better. So, so the difference is, you know, someone might be able to say, well, I know that technically my needs matter, but in their body, have they ever had a moment where they actually felt um, someone advocate for their needs in uh, a direct way? Or sometimes um, this is where ego state work gets really powerful because they can actually feel it on their own behalf. You know, when we do these imagery exercises and ego state work, like imagining your adult self feeling protective, feeling um, nurturing towards your child self, when they actually have that activated in their body, it's that felt sense that ends up being the disconfirming material, right? It's not the idea of it, it's the feeling of it. And when they feel it for the first time, that's when we know, okay, we're ready. We can go back to those traumatic moments and that feeling is now present in their body and has the power to really shift things. Yeah. Oh, when you were mentioning of you're kind of listing those components that either we want to have on the front end or we want to collect along the way. And um, what was which one was it? I, my mind came to strategies. Oh, safety. Mm-hmm. If, if there's not enough safety what we will encounter in the dynamic in this space um, in the relationship is strategy. Those two, again, I feel like we're just like teaching SIP right here. <laughs> did, Maybe it's just because we just taught one, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm having that feeling like I'm, I'm teaching that course right now, but um, if safety isn't present, strategy is required. We have to have strategies to 
feel safe enough to navigate that circumstance. So if safety is not there, we're going to encounter strategy. And that Mm -hmm. is a really helpful tool in saying, if safety is what we need to build, we're kind of monitoring how present is the strategy. Those are the flags and indicators to us to say, well, I thought I had safety or we thought it was safe enough, but maybe we need a little bit more of it. Do they Mm -hmm. feel safe? to be a a version of their exposed vulnerable self as we go through this so that they can then receive the nurturance, the care, the the emotional processing of whatever target we select. Mm -hmm. And so if you're seeing strategy, like if you're seeing all of them from very apologetic about things or Mm -hmm. am I doing this right? Um, Or let's go really fast. We have to get to that really big target right now. Like those indications that say, oh gosh, I wonder what else is at play here. Maybe we need to come back and revisit safety in this experience. Mm -hmm. So I I feel like updating EMDR this way it's like humble EMDR. (laughs) It's like, you know, taking something that has been offered to the therapeutic community as, you know, this life-changing, miraculous intervention and saying, yes, it can be, but if we add a large dose of humility and reality into the mix of that, it is still a tremendously powerful uh, way of working that has all of the essential ingredients of transformational change. But if we do it with humility, then it actually supports us to stay in the process and, and go at a pace that the client can actually integrate because it's, it's really only our, you know, pride that makes us bail, right? This, this feeling of, well, it's not working. I must be doing something wrong. That's our ego getting involved in this idea that we should be going so much faster if we were good enough or if EMDR was the right thing, that it would be this miraculous, you know, single intervention experience. And like, that's just such nonsense. Like the idea that change can be anything other than careful and slow and meticulous in what we're doing. Um, Like it feels so important to me that we as a field kind of get over ourselves and our (laughs) hubris of wanting to be miracle workers and, you know, looking at what an honor it is to go through a long, slow change process with somebody. Um, Like we don't, we don't need the ego pats on the backs of these sessions that say, oh my gosh, I, you know, after three sessions, I'm miraculously cured. Um, unless our ego is demanding that, right? And so if we can if we can adjust our expectations, there is something, at least in my experience, so much more satisfying and so much more honest about seeing EMDR as this really transformational and powerful intervention that still takes time, that still takes careful planning and is not always going to feel like a miracle and until we're sometimes two years into it looking backwards. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's just something really grounding to me about that. <laughs> and it it feels like if we can do this, then EMDR maybe can get out of its adolescence. Um, you know, it's such a young intervention. And I, you know, I have this desire to kind of help it grow up and and you know be be its next iteration of itself that um isn't so demanding of uh the the ego need to be a miracle 
Maybe that's just me talking, talking about my own maturation process, but I do think it's resonant. It is. And I feel like I just, I, I know we are very much in a parallel process of where we're at and all of that, but have been having these conversations feels a little bit vulnerable to say it on the podcast. Cause I'm like, Oh, there's like a lot of people who are going to hear this. And I, uh-huh. but whatever, um, it, the, the statement that I said to a consultee recently is that it feels like that in this process of this slow change, we can't tolerate the experience of maybe I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe this isn't effective. I can't come in and rescue and save you out of this. I can't have this, like you said, this very like powerful moment of like that just healed everything mm-hmm. that we in not being able to tolerate the slow suffering and slow relational gradual change instead of holding that with humility and saying let's both meet each other in the discomfort of that truth the discomfort of that reality instead we like shift it to them and we get to like release the responsibility of it and say we create structure around it that then puts that burden on the client where they either have to perform for us in a way that like satisfies that need and um, desire for the process. And then they carry that. I must be broken. I can't do it. I'm doing it wrong. This amazing miraculous approach doesn't work on me. And, And it's like, we like hand that burden over, unfortunately. And if, if we practice it in such a rigid way, I watch therapists after therapists hand the burden to their client to say like, well, I don't know, maybe EMDR is not a good fit for you. And not that mm-hmm. there's, there can be truth in that, but there's this like, instead of humbling ourselves to say like, let's explore what's happening in this together and be able to sit in the tension of what if it doesn't work miraculously? What if you are still suffering after several hours of us doing this work together and we're navigating and exploring that through a slow process of change. Yeah. Well, and I, I love that way of, you know, speaking about it, the temptation to blame shift to our clients, but also, you know, equally we blame shift to ourselves, right. And it's either, you know, it's a client's fault or it must be my fault. And at the end of the day, both versions of that end up being really detrimental, and we only need to put blame somewhere if we feel like something wrong is happening, right? Which which is why it feels so essential that we give a very thorough update to this idea that EMDR is fast. Because if we think that it's supposed to be fast and we're going slow, then we start to wonder who's doing something wrong and why it's not working. But understanding that, no, EMDR can take years and that's okay, right? Like, you know, it is not uncommon for for us to work with people for two years, three years, six years, (laughs) depending on the level of their trauma and the complexity of what they've lived through and the depth of work that we're attempting, right? That's the other thing that can make a big difference. But if if we allow this to be a a humble uh, EMDR, then nobody has to get blamed when it is slow and when it's hard and when it's complicated. We don't have to think that anything is going wrong because we could admit that it just is this uh, difficult sometimes. Um, And I think that when we can conceptualize the why of that, it's much easier to hold steady which is, you know, why we put such a big emphasis on case conceptualization. Not only does it help us make good clinical decisions, it also helps us uh, not move into our own strategies, 
when things are not going as smoothly uh, with a client that we can hold steady and understand like, yep, this makes sense. And here's why it makes sense. But if we don't have that tools to conceptualize our work, we we often feel like we're drowning in, in the process of it. Yeah. The um, kind of coming back into the text on 45, where it states um, that like traditional therapies have been bound to time is this comparison they're making that it was bound to time where now EMDR can be uh, comparatively a time-free process because it has rapid treatment effects and um, yeah, can be observed in this more rapid, efficient way. Yeah. Taking back that concept, going back to that concept of it can be, um, I have a lot of just like theoretical discomfort with like bound to time or time free and what does even all of that matter but um, it can be efficient it can be rapid um it, it's not that it should be but it has that possibility there is an efficiency and an effectiveness but even efficient work doesn't have to mean rapid efficient mm-hmm. work and effective work does not have to be uh time free it can yeah. be connected to time and in fact, deep, meaningful relationships. Um, oftentimes one of the most key components is time because that gives us an opportunity to measure it against all of our past love experiences to say in enough context, can I still trust you in this relationship? Can you prove yourself to be safe and trustworthy? And so I think when we take that really relational approach, um, time will be a factor. And that will look different for each client. Yeah. So, I mean, I I feel like I want to wrap up with the idea that, you know, this kind of conversation may bring up a lot of feelings for people. And I, you know, I I don't want to imagine (laughs) that I know all the reactions that could happen, but our our desire in talking about it this way is to really um, affirm the, the complexity of what we do and hopefully free people that are in the middle of challenging and complex cases um, from the the ghost in the therapy room that might suggest that you're doing something wrong because it's going slowly um, or it's not super straightforward and you're not experiencing this time-free miraculous uh, resolution with clients. It doesn't mean that anybody is doing anything wrong. That is a really normal experience. Um, And also, I think there's ways that we can learn to be even more efficient, um, which is why we focus on what we do around here and, and, you know, teach SIP and, you know, we'll give you dates for the upcoming trainings because, you know, that's a huge um, asset in in being more efficient in our work. Um, But even in all of that efficiency, we still have to take our time and we still have to be humble about what we can do, what's possible, what's just not possible. And I, I think the other area that this really highlights for me is setting expectations with our clients. Um, you know, that dreaded question at the beginning of therapy, how long is this going to take? Dear God, I hate that question more than anything. Um, <laughs> and I, But I think that this way of conceptualizing our work, my answer to that usually is you will feel some change very quickly, but the, the depth of our work will determine how fast we can go, right? We we can skim off a top layer of trauma um, very rapidly. 
but to to really get substantial shift and change is going to depend on how deep they want to go and, and what their trauma is. Um, yeah, and how contained we can keep it in all of that. And so, you know, I don't have a lot of good guidance on how to give a super specific answer to that question, other than be as honest as we can be, because the worst thing in the world is saying, oh, yeah, we'll be done in six sessions and 24 sessions and we barely begun. Yeah. <laughs> that feels bad. <laughs> and even in that, like, the you know, longer, slower process, it's not that nothing meaningful doesn't happen until the end, right? Like there's so much uh, relief and meaning brought all throughout the process, but we're not like a a solution oriented. We're not looking to get to that end point. It's really about the journey of getting there. Like the process of getting there feels just as important at wherever we land. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Well, so you mentioned uh, the SAP training dates. So yeah. I pulled that up. I took that as a cue to look at them. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that we've got two more this year, one in August, one in November, and yeah. uh, the one in November, we're actually going to be in Kentucky, which is super exciting. So we should talk about that. Yeah. So August 10th through 12th um, is our next somatic integration and processing training. And that's a three-day, uh, you can either attend virtually uh, live, but virtual or in person here in Springfield with us, where we just talk all about the things we just talked about and case conceptualization um, model. And then as Melissa mentioned in Kentucky, I think it's Gainesville, Kentucky. It's on the website, um, November 2nd through the 4th. And so, yeah, if you're over in that region or East coast and you can't make it to Springfield, Missouri, but you still want to come in person, we'd love to get to connect with some of you face-to-face. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be super fun. It's always fun to travel as a group and, and do it that way. Um, and it'll be a first training in Kentucky. So this is the inaugural Kentucky invasion of SIP. So <laughs> come and enjoy this. Goofy when we travel, so you might get a more <laughs> or tired yeah. and out of our yeah. outlet. Uh-huh. Yeah, another way, um, if you guys are interested, uh, we run EMDR certification cohorts pretty regularly. And I know that both you and I and, and Bridger have cohorts starting in the next few months. I think we have about eight spots left between the three of us. So they're filling fast, but we still have some room. Um, and we do those ongoing. So you can always get on our website and have a look at when the next one is starting. Um, but hands down, certification is really the, the process where our confidence and our understanding of how to work with EMDR in a much more nuanced way, that is where that happens. Um, the amount of uh, detail that we can get into, because we've got 10 hours of group calls, but then you get 10 hours of individual time where we're talking about your people, your cases, your way of doing therapy, which I, I love. I love the um, the intricacy of this. And, you know, like I'm a somaticist and so I have all of these other things that I can do. But when we're, when we're in certification, we can talk about what are the things that you know how to do, right? I talked to someone this week that's trained in hypnotherapy. So we talked about how hypnotherapy can be part of preparation and th- that kind of uh, personal detail and really helping you evolve your practice with EMDR is just my favorite thing that we do. Um, so join us for EMDR certification. We got cohorts with all three of us, so you can pick your favorite. <laughs> Come pick your favorite hosts and hang out with us. Um, and uh, all of that is on the website, so you can get details there. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Um, actually, our next 
well, I don't know what order this is going to release, but there's going to be a fun episode coming out to celebrate our 100th episode but yeah. by the time you hear this. So yeah, that's true. But, but we're sitting right on top of our hundredth episode, which feels crazy. <laughs> and fun. <No>. Yes. <laughs> All great. right, guys. Well, thank yeah. you so much. Mm-hmm. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.